Welcome back, Kimming Brainiacs, to the podcast, talking about chapter 14.2. Swim said the mama fishy said, As Anders said a couple of days ago, the tone has drastically changed for the good. I wonder how long it will last. Techrific says, Thank you, thank you. Now he's making fun of the Irish accent. For being part of the revivalist movement, he sure carries around a lot of anti-Irish sentiments. He really is such a snob, and not in a good way. Compare and contrast with debonair, dandy, clothes, horse, snobbery of some other authors. Moore comes across more like an intellectual snob in an entitled sort of way. Am I reading too much into this? Swim says Moore is talking about Douglas Hyde, who we were introduced to earlier during the Gaelic League banquet. He is one, the one who George described as looking like a walrus. I think he's only making <clears throat> fun of Hyde in this case. Maybe you are reading too much into it, Tech, or maybe, uh, maybe not, you know, it's a book. If you're not supposed to read into it, then what are you meant to do with it? Also, it's literary fiction, so you should be able to read as deeply into it as you like. Um, so, I do, I do think it must be, it's a bold move to pick on the Irish accent in a book like this. Bold indeed. Let's keep reading and see what happens. Oops. <clears throat> On the boat coming over, she had been assured that it was going to be a very grand affair, typical of the new spirit that was awakening in Ireland, and there was no denying that no very high intellectual level had been reached by anybody. My own paper that in the making had seemed a, a fine thing had faded away, in the reading, and she could not but have been disappointed when, with the unintellectual audience that had gathered to hear it, and the ridiculous wrangle between Hyde and the disappointed orator. She may have left her seat before it began, but even without the episode, a clear-minded Englishwoman, as she undoubtedly was, could not have failed to have been struck by a certain absence of, in of sincerity in the speeches. It would perhaps have been better if she had, hadn't come over at all events, it would have been desirable that this meeting had not been for her first glimpse of Ireland. Her tact and her affection for me would have saved her from the mistake of laughing at the meeting of, to my face. There was no real reason why I should regret having brought her over, only that the meeting had exhibited Ireland under a rough and uncouth aspect, worse still as a country that was essentially insincere and frivolous. And this was unfortunate, for I wanted her to like Ireland. The man that hadn't been allowed to blather had described the meeting as blather, a word derived no doubt from lather, and with, with what is lather but froth. Hyde had been all Guinness, and she must have laughed at the prattle of the priests, the tough, though the, in sympathy with what they had come to bless, the revival of the Irish language, I had had to bite my lips when one of them started talking about the tongue that their forefathers had spoken in time of persecution, and I had found it difficult to keep my patience when his fellow, a young cleric, said that he was in favour of a revival of the Irish language because no heresy had ever been written in it. A fine reason it was to give why we should be at pains to revive the language, and it had awakened a suspicion in me that he was just a lad in favour of the Irish language because there was no thought in its literature. 
What interest is there in any language but for the literature it has produced or is going to produce? And there can be no literature when no mental activities are about. Mental activity begets. Here, see, I muttered, and I wandered to and fro, looking for Stella, hoping to find her too, not too seriously disappointed with her first glimpse into Irish Ireland. If she had heard only one good speech or one note of genuine passion, however, imperfectly expressed, but Irish lacks passion, I said, and pushed my way through the crowd. It lacks ideas, and worst of all, it lacks passion. All the same, it is difficult to find Stella. Where the devil? All froth, porther, porther, and I returned to that very magnanimous statement that the Irish language was worth reviving because no word of heresy had been written in it, which is a lie. Damn that priest, I said. Stella cannot have failed to see through his advocacy. Without heresy, there can be no religion, for heresy means trying to think out the answer to the riddle of life and death for ourselves. We don't succeed, of course we don't, but we do lift ourselves out of the ruts when we think for ourselves, in other words, when we live. But acquiescence in dogma means decay, dead leaves in the mire, nothing more. The only thing that counts is personal feeling, and this be, if this be true, it may be said that Ireland has never shown any interest in religious questions, merely a wrangle between Protestants and Catholics. Part of the speech of another orator started into my mind. He had said he would shoulder a musket. He didn't say a rifle, mark you, but a musket. I wonder if he didn't say a pike. Dead leaves in the mire, dead traditions, or people living on the tradition of 98. But there were heroes in 98. In those days men thought for themselves and lived according to their passions. But if the meeting I have just come from is to be taken as typical, Ireland has melted away. Maybe to be revived again in the language, if the language can be revived. But can it be revived? Ah, there is Stella, and never did she seem so essentially English to me as at that moment. So English that I experienced a certain sense of resentment against her for wearing that look that, before the Boer War, had attracted me to her. I might say, had attracted me even before I had seen her. That English airs of hers, which she wore with such dignity, until I met her, the women had... I had loved were, like myself, capricious and impulsive. Some had been amusing, some charming, some pretty, and one had enchanted me by her joy in life and belief that everything she she did was right because she did it. High spirits are delightful, but incompatible with dignity. And deep down in my heart I had always wished to love a chin that deflected calm, clear, intelligent eyes and a quiet and grave demeanour for that is the English face, and the English face and temperament have always been in my blood, and it was doubtless these qualities that attracted me to my friends in Sussex. Stella might be more intelligent than they, or her intelligence was of a different kind, the measure of intellect differs in every individual, and but the temperament of the race in essentials is the same, and it endures longer, but now her very English appearance and temperament vexed me in Sackville Street, and my vexation was aggravated by the fact that it was impossible to tell why her, why I was so dissatisfied with her. She had not laughed at nor said a word in disparagement of the meeting, nor told me that, in seeking to revive the language, I was on a wild goose chase. 
But, out of sorts, with her I was, knowing myself all the while for a fool, and cursing myself as a weakling for not having been able to come to Ireland without her. The incident seemed symbolic. Neither country is able to do without the other, and it would have been easy for Stella and me to have quarrelled that evening. Though we weren't man and wife, she spoke so kindly and warmly of the meeting, seeing all that was good in it, and laughing with such agreeable humour at the incident of the disappointed orator, that I told her I loved her, despite her English face and voice and manner, making her laugh thereby. The tact of women cannot be overpraised, and they need all their tact to live with us, and how delightfully they accept the religions we invent, and the morals that we like to worry over, though they understand neither. A wonderful race is the race of women, easily misunderstood by men, for they understand only lovers, children and flowers. To fill many pages on the subject of women would be easy, and perhaps my sympathy would be more interesting than the tale I have to tell. Even so, I should have to continue telling how, some months after my visit to Dublin, when the cloud cast by the meeting at the rotunda upon my belief in the possibility of the Celtic Renaissance, had dissolved another escape from England it presented itself. A letter arrived one morning from Yeats, summoning me to Ireland, so that we might come to some decision about Diamuid and Grania, the play that we had agreed to write in collaboration. We had exchanged many letters, but as everyone had seemed to estrange us, Lady Gregory had charged Yeats to invite me to Cool, where he was staying at the time, reading in this letter a week spent in the very heart of Ireland, among lakes and hills, and the most delightful conversation in the world, I accepted the invitation with pleasure. As I write, the wind whistles and yells in the street. The waves must be mountains high in the channel, I said, but the Irish Sea has always been propitious to me. All my crossings have been accomplished amid sparkling waves and dipping gulls, and the crossing that I am trying to remember when I went to Cool to write Diamuid and Grania was doubtless as fine as those that had gone before. I can recall myself waiting eagerly for the beautiful shape of Howarth to appear above the sea line, my head filled with its legends, or maybe my memory fails me, and it may well have been that I crossed under the moon and stars, for I remember catching the morning mail from the broadstone and journeying pale for want of sleep and tired through the beautiful country of Dublin alongside county of Dublin, alongside of the canal, here and there slipping into swamp, with an abandoned boat in the rushes. But, when I, when we leave county Dublin, the country begins to drop away into bogland, the hovel appears, there is a good deal of the west of Ireland, all through Ireland, but as soon as the middle of Ireland has been crossed, the green country begins again, and seeing many woods, I fell to thinking how Ireland once had been known as the island of many woods, cultivated in patches and overrun by tribes always at war with the other. So it must have been in the 4th century when Grania fled with Tara, with Diomede, her adventure and mine to write Ireland's greatest love story in conjunction with Yeats. 
Athelone came into sight, and I looked upon the Shannon with a strange and new tenderness, thinking that it might have been in a certain bed of rushes that Grenier lifted her kirtle, the sweetness of her legs blighting in diamond all memory of his oath of fealtry to Finn, and compelling him to take her in his arms, and in the words of the old Irish storyteller, to make a woman of her. And without doubt, it would have be a great thing to shape this primitive story into a play, if we could do it without losing any of the grandeur and significance of the legends. I thought of the beauty of Diamond, his doom, and how he should court it at the end of the second act, when the great fame of Finn captures Grania's imagination. The third act would be the pursuit of the boar through the forest, followed by Finn's great hounds, Bran, Skellan, and Lomierily. In happy meditation, mile after mile went by. Lady Gregory's station is gaunt. Cool was beginning to be known to the general public at the time. I went there to ride Diamond and Grenier with Yeats. Hyde had been to Cool and had been inspired to write several short plays in Irish, one of them The Twisting of the Rope. We hoped we should be able to introduce, induce Mr. Benson to allow us to produce after Diamond and Grenier. If Yeats had not begun the shadowy waters at Cool, he had at least written several versions of it under Lady Gregory's roof tree. And so, Cool will be historic. Later still, it will become a legend, a sort of minstrelburg, the home of the Bell Branch singers, I said, trying to keep my bicycle from skidding, for I had told the coachman to look after my luggage and bring it with him on the car, hoping in this way to reach Cool in time for breakfast. The sun was shining, but the road was dangerously greasy, and I had much difficulty in saving myself from falling. A lovely morning, I said, pleasantly ventilated by light breezes from the Buran Mountains. We shall all become folklore in time to come, fins and diamonds and ushines, every one of us, and Lady Gregory, a new Niam, who, at the moment, my bicycle nearly succeeded in throwing me into the mud, but by lifting it on to the footpath and by giving all my attention to it, I managed to reach the lodge gates without a fall. A horn, I said, should hang on the gatepost, and the gate should not open till the visitor has blown forth a motif. But Yeats would be kept a long time waiting, for he is not musical, and thinking of the various funny noises he would produce on the horn, I admired the hawthorns that A.E. painted last year, and at the end of the long drive, a portico appeared in red and blue grass, partly hidden by masses of reddening creeper. Sir William's marbles detained me on the staircase, and whilst I compared present with past appreciations, Lady Gregory came to meet me with the news of Yeats. He was still composing. We should have to wait breakfast for him, and we waited till Lady Gregory, taking pity on me, rang the bell, but the meal we sat down to was disturbed by not a little by thoughts of Yeats, who still tarried. The whisper went round the table that he must have overtaken by some inspiration, and Lady Gregory fluttered with care and about was about to send her servant to inquire if Mr Yeats would like to have his breakfast in his room, and at that moment the poet appeared, smiling and delightful, saying that just as the clocks were striking ten, the metre had begun to beat, and abandoning himself to the emotion of the tune, he had allowed his pen to run till it had completely nearly eight and a half lines, and the conversation turned on the embarrassment his prose caused him, forcing him to reconstruct his scenario. He would have written his play in half the time if he had begun writing it in verse. As soon as we rose from the table, Lady Gregory told us we should be undisturbed in the drawing-room till tea-time, and thanking her we moved into the room. The moment had come, and feeling like a swordsman that meets for the first time a re- doubtable for rival, 
I reminded Yeats that in his last letter he had said, we must decide in what language the play should be written, not whether it should be written in English or in Irish, neither of us knew Irish, but in what style. Yes, we must arrive at some agreement as to the style of what Good will your dialogue be to me if it is written, let us say, in the language of Esther Waters, nor would it be of any use to you if I were to write it in Irish dialect. Yeats was not sure on that point. A peasant grenier appealed to him, and I regretted that my words should have suggested to him so hazardous an experiment as a peasant grenier. We are writing an historic play, and a long time was spent on the question whether the Galway dialect was possible in the mouth of heroes, I, cont- I, contending that it would render the characters fa- farcical, for it not, for it is not until the language has been strained through many minds the tragedy can be written in it. Balzac wrote Les Contes Drolytiques in Old French because Old French lends itself well to droll stories. Our play had better be written in the language of the Bible, avoiding all terms of speech, said Yeats, which immediately recalled the Bible. You will not write Angus and his son in Diamuid, which is in heaven, I hope. We don't want to recall the Lord's Prayer, and for some the same reason, you will not use any archaic words. You will avoid words that recall any particular epoch. I'm not sure that I understand. The word honour and ideal suggests the Middle Ages and should not be used. The word glory is charged with modern idea, the glory of God and the glory that shall cover Lord Kitchener when he returns from Africa. You will not use it. The word soldier represents to us a man that wears a red tunic. An equivalent must be found. Swordsman or fighting man. Hill is a better word than mountain. I can't give you a reason, but that is my feeling. And the word ocean was not known to the early Irish, only the sea. We shall have to begin by writing a dictionary of the words that may not be used and all the ideas that may not be introduced. Last week you wrote beginning me not to wait last oh, sorry, last week you wrote begging me not to waste time writing descriptions of nature. Primitive man, you said, did not look at trees for the beauty of the branches and the agreeable shade they cast, but for the fruits they bore and the wood they furnished for making spear shafts and canoes. A most ingenious theory, Yeats, and it may be that you are right, but I think it is safer to assume that primitive man thought and felt much as we do. Life in its essential changes very little, but we are not writing about essentials or trying to. Yeats said that the ancient writer wrote about things and that the softness, the weakness, the effeminacy of modern literature could be attributed to ideas. There are no ideas in ancient literature, only things, and in support of this theory, reference was made to the sagas, to the Iliad, to the Odyssey, and I listened to him forgetful of the subject which we had met to discuss. It is through the dialect, he continued, that one escapes from the abstract words, back to the sensation inspired directly by the thing itself. But Yeats, a play cannot be written in dialect, nor do I think it can be written by turning common phrases which rise up in the midst, in the mind into uncommon phrases. That is what one is always doing. If, for the sake of one's literature, one had the courage to don a tramp's weed, you object to the word don, and still more to weed, Well, if one had the courage to put on a tramp's jacket and wander through the country, sleeping in hovels, eating American bacon and lying five in a bed, 
One might be able to write the dialect naturally, but I don't think that one can acquire the dialect by going out to walk with Lady Gregory. She goes into the cottage and listens to the story, takes it down while you ate outside, sitting on a bit of wall, yeets like an old jackdaw, and then filching her manuscript to put style upon it, just as you want to put style on me. Yeats laughed vaguely. His laugh is one of the most melancholy things in the world, and it seemed to me that I had to come to cool on a fruitless errand that we should never be able to write Dermod and Grenier in collaboration. That's the end of chapter 14. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.